Good afternoon from uh, Boston AF Symposium. I'm joined by Rod Passman. Thanks a lot for being here today. My pleasure. Um, Rod Passman is the director for uh, Center of Arrhythmia Research at the Northwestern University at Chicago, Illinois, and the principal investigator of a, a revolutionary new digital health trial, the REACT trial, which is a randomized clinical trial using Apple Watches to guide pill-in-the-pocket anticoagulation for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Thank you much for, uh, for joining us. My uh, pleasure. Thank you for having me. So before we, we dive in, what is something that people might not find on your LinkedIn bio or your uh, online, uh, through hmm. online searching? <laughs> well, I would say um, my two real claims to fame have nothing to do with my job as an electrophysiologist. Um, number one, um, the city of Chicago uh, is famous for its hot dogs, and I took care of a family member of uh, someone who owns a well-known hot dog stand. So to thank me, he created the Dr. Rod Passman Celebrity Sausage. So that's one. But where can we get that one? Well, you know, I, I don't want to be peddling the sausages. It's not, it's not good for you. Uh, and, then, and then the second is that I was a consultant on the James Bond movie, Casino Royale. Really? Yeah, so that scene where he gets poisoned with digitalis is a scene that, that I consulted on. Oh, that's really cool. Um, just before we dive in, because this is so interesting, what did they ask you? Well, they, uh, one day I, I get a call from my, uh, uh, sitting in my office, and it's uh, from the um, set of the James Bond movie, and they said that um, they can't reveal very much, but that one of the characters, whose initials are JB, uh, <laughs> is going to be poisoned with digitalis, and they wanted to sort of know, you know, um, what it would look like and what the um, EKG would look like. So we actually... Uh, went to the EP lab and we simulated sort of bi-directional wow. VT and in the background you could see that going through. Okay, so, so once you, if you watch Casino Royale, then you you'll know see that scene, EKG exactly. generated. Okay. So after that, really, there's not, not much more I could achieve. <laughs> okay, that's great. That's a really cool story. Okay, so let's go uh, dive more deeper into remote patient monitoring world, uh, digital health, wearables. So first of all, let's start like, do you believe in this new way of working, the remote patient monitoring model? Um, yes or no? Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, in the field of electrophysiology, to be able to monitor our patients remotely with a consumer electronics device or uh, an implantable device, you know, is really the key to good management. I mean, not only do patients like it, um, but I think that it provides better care, better outcomes, and reduces their need to come see me in my office, wind up in the emergency department, or get hospitalized. So. I have no doubt that this is very, very uh, useful and important technology. Yes, I, and talking about uh, man, often people are worried that it's going to lead to a lot more visits instead of reducing visits. So what are, what are your thoughts there? You know, I think that for many patients, um, the ability to sort of respond in a timely manner, intervene, actually delays uh, office visits or the need for office visits because you've taken care of the problem. You know, you've changed a medication, you've you know, put them on better rate control, or in many cases, you've just reassured them that everything's okay. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that the, the few minutes that it takes to sort of respond to that information actually winds up uh, saving me a lot of time because mm -hmm. it's not a designated office visit. And I think the patients really appreciate that kind of uh, personalized care and those responses. Mm. No, that's a, that's a really good um, answer to the to the question. And then maybe in your in your view, what what do you think are the pitfalls then of these new technologies? Well, you know, when you're talking about you know consumer electronics devices, um, you know, it's a whole new world because we are getting the results of a test that we didn't order. 
So, you know, normally if you order a monitor, you're expecting the result and the result comes in during working hours and daylight hours um, and you have a formal, well delineated method of responding. But, you know, patients may send you tracings from a device um, that you didn't ask for. And that may be uh, uh, sometimes not in the hours that you want. You know, I think a lot of it is also, you know, while these are very powerful tools, you also have to set limits and expectations. You know, you're not there 24-7 to respond in real time. And I think most patients understand that. Um, and, um, you know, you, you need to set the rule book that you're, again, not just an open door because uh, it's not mm. feasible for you to constantly be online and, and responding yeah. and managing. And how do you com communicate that, like, the first time they meet you, say, hey, um, how does it look like? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I strongly encourage my patients who don't have implantable devices to buy some sort of uh, remote uh, 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 consumer electronic device because of the reasons we mentioned. But I do tell them that, first of all, and we could talk about this later, you know, how it gets into the, uh, into the EHR is very important. You know, um, in the old days, I would give people my, my uh, email address and they would email it to me, and that was fine when these were rare. Uh, individuals, but now there are so many uh, patients who have it. There's not, it's not a tenable situation. So, you know, I have patients send it directly to their EHR. It gets uploaded in, you know, a tab, and then I could see it and respond, you know, um, through the portal of the EHR. And I think that's really important because it provides, you know, formal documentation of what your response is. We have that tracing in mm -hmm. the EHR, uh, and it also allows you to control, um, you know, when when you see that, right? And uh, Again, I've never had an issue where uh, uh, there was a, a dangerous thing happened with a delay, and I think you have to inform people that the emergency department is still their first place of option if they have severe symptoms, and that you know you cannot be expected to respond and manage all problems remotely. Mm -hmm. I, and <clears throat> to that example where you're reacting from the HR, you're communicating. One of the common objections uh, we hear is that we're not allocated. We don't get time to work on these things. We have to do this in addition to our normal work. Uh, we don't get reimbursed for it. And it's almost like a volunteer work uh, uh, that, you, that I, not in some people say I hadn't asked for. Well, that, that is true. And I think right now we've not really figured out a good way to um, respond and monetize these events, right? But ultimately, I would like to see these remote transmissions from these consumer devices treated in the same way as a remote monitoring of an implantable device, where we have, you know, uh, teams that adjudicate, uh, uh, get overread officially, get billed for. I think we as a community of, of, of healthcare providers need to show that that model actually saves money to the system mm. because we're avoiding hospitalizations, ER visits, um, you know, patch technologies or implantable devices that cost a lot more. So I think that part of the gap in knowledge is showing that that is a, uh, a, a way of practicing medicine that um, is sort of revolutionary, right? That yeah. patients don't come to see us just when they're sick or when they have an appointment scheduled months no. in advance, that we could respond in a timely manner. And we need to prove that that method of treating patients actually impacts meaningful outcomes. Yeah. Well, this reminds me of something that you shared during your presentation yesterday about the REACT trial, that it can take, you know, five to six years before you have the clear outcomes. And we want the payers also to take part in the responsibility in all the pioneering work that you're doing, but then the proof is coming 
at a later time. So there's like almost a gap, like who's going to take this responsibility? And uh, yeah, right now, it seems most of it's on your shoulders. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a study like, like we're doing where we are, you know, basically randomized study, very large, looking for very important outcomes, that's going to be critical. But I think, you know, doing studies also showing that their use of this technology reduces visits, reduces co reduce costs, that's not a five or six year study, no. right? That's a study that can be done. And I think we need to go to the payers and say, hey, listen, you know, it's worth it for, you know, an $80 mm -hmm. cardio device or a, you know, several hundred dollar wearable device um, to, you know, support this to create and pay for the infrastructure yes. needed to respond because that's going to save so much money on the other end. Are we doing enough of those studies? You know, um, I know uh, we are trying to, and I think that there's uh, people interested. You know, one of the problems I would say is that the, uh, you know, the people who make some of these devices are not your traditional partners in pharma or medical devices, right? So, you know, the Apples and the Fitbits of the world, they've run very large-scale sightless trials, um, you know, which have enrolled hundreds of thousands of patients. But, you know, in the sort of partnerships with um, uh, uh, researchers trying to answer some of these questions, sometimes that those, um, those uh, relationships have not been well mm -hmm. delineated. So I think there's a challenge, and I think that um, we both need to um, sort those out because, you know, for these device companies, this may be a small part of their market, um, but for us, it's a really growing and critical part of the way we're practicing medicine in the 21st century. Yeah. I think it's a valuable point, and also that, that there is some responsibility on the medical device manufacturer to realize that without doing this, you know, we cannot move forward jointly together as a as a uh, as a digital health innovation and and implementing these practices and convincing payers that there is value uh, in in remote patient monitoring. And uh, so let's let's get into the how do you implement it? So let's say there are people watching and they're wondering, okay, nice, I, I understand the technology, but how does it actually work? Like, what? how does day one, when you make a decision, you say, hey, I'm going to start using wearable technology or remote patient monitoring. What do you do? Well, you know, I think that I had that discussion with the patient in my room. You know, I figure out what's the best option for them, you know, is a wearable device that's going to passively check for irregular rhythms throughout the day, you know, is that the right choice? Or is a, you know, uh, a handheld ECG device, which they could record a 30-second ECG during symptoms or uh, on some uh, cadence that we want to maybe uh, do surveillance for an abnormal mm. rhythm. So each situation is different, uh, and I also think you need to take into account what other devices that individual has because not all devices are compatible with each other yes. and the cost of these devices. So it really requires um, that conversation. Then some people simply aren't comfortable with, with um, those types of devices that require um, some interaction and maybe for some an implantable device if you're interested in long-term monitoring mm. makes more sense um, when available. It so, almost sounds like prescribing a certain medicine based on the patient. Okay, I think this device works best for you. Yeah. Or? Yeah, and I, I think it's something that we're not trained very well in, and it does take a little effort to understand the, the strengths and the benefits of each type of device. But, yeah. you know, that conversation and the setting of expectations and the delineation of how that individual gets that data to me is incredibly valuable, right? So, uh, you know, I could say, I don't need to see you for a year. I am going to be following you every day in a sense, right? When you have a problem, you and I are gonna be able to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. And really the amount of time that it takes, you know, most patients aren't having problems. No. Uh, those that do, 
you know, they could be halfway around the world and we could often deal with their situation in a, in a very timely manner. And I, you know, we're all in this business to help people. And to me, um, it is an incredibly empowering and meaningful experience for the patient to know that their heart rhythm doctor is accessible to them, mm -hmm. you know, uh, when, when needed. Um, yeah. So, uh, again, I think it's very time efficient. I think it's really, really nice the way you have a device selection or solution based on the profile of the patient. And then how do you get your team to go along as well, like your processes and, and how, how, do, how do, yeah. Yeah, well, well, first of all, I would say that we have not perfected this flow of data. I mean, I think that the, the deluge of data has outpaced our ability to integrate it. The system we have now is where patients send it directly via, you know, their portal uh, to the EHR. Um, but, but we don't, we overread it, but we are currently not billing for it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are systems that are growing now in the United States, certainly, where uh, basically a handshake can be made between the patient's device and the ECG uh, uh, device in the hospital so that the tracing will go automatically to the ECG machine, you know, be printed out, overread, and, oh, yeah. and billed for. Oh, so yeah. I, I do think that this takes sort of system integration, right? The, the people who make the devices maybe aren't the ones that are going to make the connections that get into the HR and overhead, right? But there's certainly an opportunity for those handshakes to be made, mm -hmm. and I think that's what you're beginning to see. Oh, yeah. And again, so this is exactly why, you know, this, this video interview is because nobody has perfected it. And I think every single advice is already something because there's so little knowledge available on this topic. So saying this, this idea of sending it to the ECG, I think it's the first time I've heard it, heard it in order to be, to reimburse it, it's a really good idea. Are there any other um, advices you would have on, okay, so you get a lot of tracings and then what? Like what, what's something you can? Right, so then, you know, um, you know, we're fortunate enough, we have, you know, uh, uh, support staff that we could say, yes, this is atrial fibrillation, you know, make sure the patient's on anticoagulation and, you know, either change this medication or bring them in for a cardioversion. So literally that takes, you know, a minute or two. Mm -hmm. You know, we're both, we're, you know, we're all very facile in overreading these these tracings or you say, I'm not sure what this is. Yes. And this patient needs to come in for a formal EKG. Mm -hmm. In the old days, though, people would call and saying, I have palpitations and 100% of them would have to come in and either get an EKG or, or have a monitor sent to them. You know, now it's that rare individual where we don't know what's going on and we need to bring them in, right? We could at least initiate treatment now remotely as an outpatient, and when they do come in, you know, a lot has been done already, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, I would say, too, that not only have we not kept up, but at least in the U.S., you know, the, the payers haven't kept up. So, you know, is a handheld ECG device um, different from an implantable cardiac monitor in terms of the data? Well. They kind of treat it differently, but again, we need to make that that economic argument that these devices save money to all the payers, and therefore they need to change their policies. I would hope mm -hmm. um, that that really take advantage of this technology and don't sti and, and not yeah. stifle it. No, absolutely. Um, how do how do you move something like this forward? Or this has become this is a political question. Like, how do you? get the payers involved? Yeah, well, that's, I, I, I think, you know, the first thing we need is convincing data, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, individuals, groups, you know, need to formalize the use of these devices to make the economic argument, and then mm -hmm. you, uh, you know, you go to the payers. I think that 
uh, everyone wants to save money. Uh, and in this case, this is a, one of those rare opportunities where it doesn't take a huge amount of money to save a lot of money because these devices are relatively inexpensive compared to the uh, medical grade devices that we often you know, mm -hmm. order or implant in our patients. Yeah. So I think that there's a real opportunity here, but it has to start with the data. Yeah. Hey, and, and do you see a certain patient population where you think this is the best targeted, like patient with heart palpitations or post-ablation or cardioversion? Is there anywhere you say, oh, this is where it, there's the most value to start with? Yeah, I mean, I actually think that uh, all those scenarios are useful, right? So for the patient with palpitations, you know, um, the ability to record a 30-second ECG during palpitations you know, is incredibly powerful and maybe better than having a monitor that you wear for a week or two that only allows for a snapshot in time. So like everything else, you have to take into account the frequency of symptoms, the severity, you know, if people pass out with it, it's not good. Mm -hmm. If it happens every day, um, you know, uh, um, you don't need to get a two-week patch. Um, I, but I think in every scenario that you mentioned, you know, post-cardioversion, where we want to see how long the patient stayed in a normal rhythm, right? We're, we could get a monitor on them, but if they did a tracing, you know, every other day for a few weeks, we would get a sense of whether the cardioversion uh, held. Uh, and in terms of post-AF ablation, in a similar manner. I mean, unless we are, you know, doing it for research purposes or to change clinical decision-making, uh, you know, one could argue why monitor, but I do think that this sort of technology is incredibly useful in all those scenarios. And I uh, personally uh, have all of my patients do some form of monitoring. Uh, and in all those scenarios, I think that there are, are use cases that, uh, again, avoid patients coming into further contact with the medical system in person and save a lot of money. Mm. <clears throat> and before we round off this, we talked about barriers to success, one being the interoperability of the data, getting streamlined into into the EHR, we talked about reimbursement hurdles. Are there any other hurdles that you see um, uh, currently in, in allowing this to scale, allowing this to become widespread? Well, you know, I think that there's still um, hurdles in the technology itself, right? Um, in some of the handheld ECG devices, there are a fair amount of inconclusive tracings. There are mm. false positives that create unnecessary anxiety and testing. So, you know, my hope is that um, as the technology improves, as AI improves, that that will get only better. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, you know, some of these monitors are not based on ECG. They're based on, on photoplethysmography, PPG, which I think is an incredibly effective tool for long-term, con almost continuous monitoring. And there, too, you know, very susceptible to movement artifact and hopefully uh, better technology, better sensors and artificial intelligence will almost allow us to you know, uh, have patients wear, you know, almost continuous uh, passive monitors for arrhythmia over very long periods of time for, you know, maybe tens of dollars or hundreds of dollars. Yeah. To, to one of the points you were mentioning about the inconclusive tracing, and there was a study, I think it was between 16 to 20 percent inconclusive. How, do, how should we work with that information, knowing that maybe one in five might be inconclusive? Yeah, well, that sort of gets into, you know, you still need to overread these ECGs, you know, and the, the, the devices are good, but far from perfect, and they don't match the quality of overread that you get from an expert cardiologist, electrophysiologist, mm -hmm. or overreader of any kind. So um, uh, there's, you know, certainly plenty of room for uh, improvements in these overreads, and that's really where I think AI will come in, and we've already seen uh, important uh, improvements in 
the sensitivities and specificities by implementing AI into these already available algorithms. Yeah. No, great. Um, so what do you think success would look like for the clinicians uh, when implementing the remote patient monitoring in an ideal world, which we're far from yet? Yeah. But well, I would like to see, um, you know, payers say, hey, you're leaving the hospital with a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Here's a monitoring device that will be yours um, that, you know, when you have a, uh, either when your doctor orders it and requests one, or under these conditions, you know, when you're feeling severe symptoms, you know, you could send it to us. It automatically goes from the patient's, you know, smartphone to the EHR, gets overread, uh, gets billed for, and that, you know, a team responds to that individual just like they do with a pacemaker or defibrillator today. Mm. Would that, would that be in, inside of a hospital? Would that become a virtual hospital? Well, that's a great question. I mean, right now, you know, these patients belong to someone. So I think right now, uh, you know, uh, uh, that it should belong to uh, the, the person caring for you who has the background uh, and the information on you necessary to make an informed decision. I think one question that you can consider is that, you know, many people have these devices who don't have doctors. So if they get an alert, for example, if they're having atrial fibrillation, now they first have to find uh, a doctor to care for them. And sometimes, you know, if you want to see a special doctor or an individual doctor, there can be a wait. So, you know, could there be a mechanism by which some sort of, you know, telehealth visit can be done uh, on a patient who you don't belong to? That's also possible. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, that maybe brings to the next question, like, what do you think the future, and you touched, of, of course, uh, upon this, like, how would it look like in five years? Well, I think in five years um, that um, we may be shifting to more and more of these devices, uh, and that we rely upon these devices, not just for patient management, but maybe more and more for research purposes as well, right? We talk a lot at this meeting today about burden of atrial fibrillation and mm. about how things like ablation impact burden. Well, for burden, you really need long-term monitoring, uh, and maybe this will become a standard uh, for invasive therapies for atrial fibrillation. I also think that not only can these devices be used to detect abnormal rhythms, but really they're a powerful research tool because we don't need patients to come back to see us um, to fill out forms as part of a research project. You can enroll patients uh, uh, and follow them remotely and have them respond to questionnaires remotely. So I think it allows us to perform research in a much more cost-efficient manner and on a much larger scale. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Maybe just to quickly summarize to see if we left anything out. A, hot dog. B, James, <laughs> James Bond. Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they, uh, there was, uh, there was uh, I think, a series called Treason, and they showed the life core actually in there. Oh, really? The ECG. Cool. Uh, I'll have to check that out. They didn't call you, right? No. They'll call you next time. They, I have to have call, I'll speak to my agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just to go, I think you started with a really interesting uh, concept of choosing the right device for your patient, uh, depending on their digital literacy, depending on their condition, choosing the device. And then, indeed, secondly, seeing this as a time investment, the extra few minutes that you're putting in are preventing future, um, future potential visits. Uh, one thing you also correctly said, it's, it's still far from perfect, but it's already helping us in, uh, in terms of the patient satisfaction. 
um, again, still far from perfect because we're still figuring out the reimbursement models. How do we get paid for them? There's some workarounds like sending your EKG to the um, uh, into inside the hospitals and getting uh, reimbursed for that. Um, and so. <clears throat> bit by bit, we're moving in the right direction. There's still a lot of work to be done, especially also on the evidence side of things, where you mentioned that we should be doing more health economic studies, shorter ones, not per se five years, but can we do something and uh, in, a, in a year, in a year and a half? And this is also part of the responsibility of the medical device manufacturers, that they should be um, uh, taking part in this, because this could help also move payers in the direction to reimburse uh, for the time that currently is in a, in a black hole, uh, is not being accounted for. Um, is there anything you, you wanted to add to, to no, that? No, uh, I, I think that was a very good summary. You know, you started by saying, you know, I think we as, as healthcare providers tend to be very altruistic, right? We don't view our time as a, a commodity worth monetizing. But, you know, we are spending time giving expert overreads of ECGs and managing patients. And I think that the system should recognize that. But I also think that, you know, many of us, particularly those of us who do procedures, you know, that if we had to see each patient every time they had a symptom and schedule for an appointment, that we would never get out of clinic. You know, to me, this is a way uh, that, that I find it, it liberates me uh, to take care of a larger number of people uh, in a shorter period of time and free my in-person visits to those patients who uh, either we haven't met yet or, or, you know, require some change in management above and beyond what can be done remotely. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Rod, today for your time. It was a great interview. My pleasure. If you're in Chicago, get the... Get the Dr. Rod Passman <laughs> Celebrity Sausage. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you.